Hey everybody, I am excited to have Andrew. He is the director of growth at Postscript and he's worked at Wistia, HubSpot. I'm excited to chat with him about his career because he is, I would say, a, a little bit further in his growth career than some people who are maybe a little earlier with their careers. So how's it going, Andrew? How are things with you? I'm doing great, man. Pumped to be here. Happy to geek out a little bit with you. Yeah, I mean, before we talk about growth, I just want just a little bit of fun. You said that you love woodworking. I'm curious what your favorite piece of furniture that you've created from scratch is. Oh, man, this is cool. I, I do love woodworking. I find that dude, I spend all day in the cloud, you know, and so it's it's nice to unplug from that and do things with my hands. Yeah. That, you know, it's all about being present and attention to detail and, mm. you know, very exciting for me. It helps me refill my cup, very meditative almost. Um, mm. So anyways, oh, the coolest thing I've ever built is my dining room table. So I built this dining room table with walnut, uh, black walnut, which for any of the wood nerds who might be listening, it, it's like the Ferrari of woods. It's like the nicest wood, maybe the Cadillac, uh, depending what, what kind of cars you're into, but made a black walnut wood. It's a herringbone pattern. So it's like kind of a cool sort of tile look. And I made the base of it. In addition to it just looking nice, I made it using... Uh, mortise and tenon joinery, which is like no screws visible, only joined on the inside. And I'm just like pumped on, man. Every time I look at it, we, uh, you know, it makes me smile. And we enjoy that thing. It's interesting. Yeah. You, have, you have dinner there every day, pretty much, or yeah. every evening? Uh, dude, I'm embarrassed to say we eat a lot of our dinners at the coffee table, but do eat dinner at the kitchen table once in a while. It's in our like formal living room, so we don't go in there all the time. But when we do, that's, that's where it's at. That's cool. I, I like what you said there where like, you know, we do live in the cloud. One of the things I do outside of growth is I love cooking. Like that's a, one thing that I'm in the present and I'm chopping and you have to be present because you're going to burn your vegetable. <laughs> you can burn your food. Just something that really resonated with what you said there. Anyway, let's, let's jump right in about growth and we're going to be talking about career. I want to talk about, you know, how you've advanced in your career. But before we do, I'm curious how you got started with growth. I, I've met some really interesting people in growth and they've come from backgrounds in drama and like creative things, painting, uh, chemical engineering, some of the programmers, some of the writers. Growth is like really that diverse field. I'm curious how you got into growth. I feel like it was the only thing for me to logically get into. So, I mean, I, I was a business major in college. Like my, both my parents are small business owners. My dad's an accountant. And so I always felt like I was analytically inclined. But mm. I thought I was going to go to college to get into multimedia and like video editing. I was very into like skateboard, snowboard culture and like filming and editing and putting out these like two minute long videos is, is a huge part of that or was a huge part. And so the reality is I realized I like wasn't creative enough to be like a really creative <laughs> marketer. And so I kind of just naturally gravitated more towards the <laughs> analytical side. And so my first job, I worked at this huge ad agency called Digitas. This is in like 2008 when I, when I got my first wow. job. And like my first couple clients were Disney and Aflac and Bank of America, and they'd spend hundreds of millions of dollars on banner wow. ads. And so I just started like that was my job, right? We like we'd set up these banner ads, we plastered them on the internet. And like when I really got into the gig, I realized that the whole job was they'd spend twenty million dollars on an end of year campaign, but really they'd start the campaign in November and they'd spend mm -hmm. one million bucks run a version of the campaign with a ton of different creative, like Mickey, Pluto, Donald Duck, <laughs> Princess, you know, all that stuff. And then Disney would just figure out what works. They'd maybe test a landing page next, maybe two or three. 
And they basically would just figure out what works. And then they put the rest of like the 22 million bucks into the campaign in December. And I just thought that was really cool. And so I eventually went to HubSpot where it wasn't quite applicable, but I had kind of learned how <laughs> big companies make decisions. And I just started using data to help these smaller HubSpot customers make better decisions and work through challenges. And some of them did a little bit of A-B testing here and there, but for the most part, it was some pretty basic like data and analyzation kind of stuff. And then it was really when I went to Wistia that I realized that the thing that I was doing that was using data and A-B testing and experimentation layered on with some customer research was this commercialization thing, growth. And so we started doing a lot of A-B testing at Wistia. They had a huge audience that we thought we could get more out of, like more conversions, more free accounts, more sales, et cetera. And so I just started doing a lot of experimentation that eventually led into a team and kind of shot out from there. And how did you get into Postgrep? Like you, you just made this transition out as head of growth at, at Postgrep from Wistia. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm motivated by learning impact and scale. And so mm. I loved the scale that we were at at Wistia, but for the most part, it was incremental. You know, my first two and a half years working in growth at Wistia, dude, it was awesome. Uh, like we were just constantly <laughs> learning stuff and breaking through plateaus and getting big wins. And over time, you know, eventually if you do a good job in growth, you should hopefully work yourself out of a job, right? Like you should get a lot of the wins eventually, whether it takes two months or two years, and then it becomes a little bit more incremental. And that's kind of where we were at Wistia. And so they started to grow a little bit more by leaning back into their bread and butter, which is brand and content and creating video shows and series. And so I knew I wanted to go work at another company that had the potential to become a really high volume business. And that's how I ended up at Postscript. Postscript is on that path or earlier in the journey, but we've got product market fit. We're growing very quickly month over month. <laughs> it's been a blast and it should be a blast here for a long time based on the trajectory we're at. That's really cool. And there was a few things that you mentioned there, different skills that you have. You talked about analytical, entrepreneurial, you talked about creative. With growth nowadays, you know, it has so many different meanings. <laughs> I'm curious for you, what are the top skills if people want to get into growth or they're already in growth and they want to double down on skills? What are those skills that you would say growth folks should have? It's a good question. I think there's like two buckets. There's the soft skills and then there's like the more tactical skills. So on the soft skill side, I kind of mentioned it, like you need to be obsessed with helping customers or helping users, depending what your product is. Because if you're obsessed with helping them, then you'll get into understanding the customer pain points and their jobs to be done. And you can kind of get into some of those frameworks. But in my mind, growth is all about understanding what value is and then mm -hmm. delivering that value in creative ways and removing blockers to it. So someone who's obsessed with customers someone who's got a learner mindset, I feel like in growth, things are always changing, right? Like you've got changes in consumer behavior, you've got changes in the market, you've got changes in technology. Like there's just always stuff to learn. There's always like the next coolest product that you saw a conference on that you're like, oh, I got to try that, that out next. So you need a learner mindset. And then you need someone who doesn't care about being right. Uh, I don't mm. know the right way to word it, but I just feel like working in growth, a lot of it is finding the right answer and not caring if that idea came from you or from somebody else. You need to be a little bit selfless uh, when it comes to how you get to, to success, however you define it. And then on the tactical side, I think it helps to be analytical, uh, you know, to understand a little bit about A-B testing and statistical significance and all that good stuff. Like there's definitely some skills there. Someone who's skilled at working cross-functionally, like someone who's a good project or 
yeah, project manager, whether it's on the product or marketing side, I think is really helpful. And um, someone who's good, I mentioned kind of understanding value and then identifying friction points. I feel like that's such a huge part of it as well. There's some stuff there that I want to ask follow-up questions on, particularly on the soft skills. I think you know, it's often people forget the soft skills. <laughs> They're like, oh, I got to know my numbers. I got to know this. I got to be analytical. There was two things particularly that you highlighted in the soft skills that I want to talk about. The first is having that learner's mindset. I've been really reflecting about this lately where I feel like the school system has not taught us how to learn. They've like, you know, they, the way that they teach us, here's information, memorize it, regurgitate it. Versus in the real world, that's not what happens. I'm curious, you know, like how do you learn how to learn essentially <laughs> for you, yourself? Like what's worked for you to learn new things? And maybe, you know, what things can work for others. For me, I think it's just because I'm a skeptical person. And so mm -hmm. whenever I hear somebody else doing something, I just want to understand it more. And I want to understand why that, that thing that they said is true. I want to understand why it's true and then how it actually works. If you had asked my parents when I was like in sixth grade, they would have been like, oh, Andrew will be a lawyer. Like he's a pain in the ass. They'd tell me to do something. And I'd be like, well, why? Like, why do I need to do it? So I think for me, it's built into some of that kind of stuff. So I think if you're trying to adopt a little bit more of a learner mindset, I think it's to question assumptions, to mm. understand why are things yeah. always done this way? Why is this the right way to do it? And from a company perspective, why does everybody else do the same thing? Is it because it's really effective or is everybody else just doing the same thing because no one else knows what to do and they're just copycatting each other? So I think it's just someone who asks really tough questions and is naturally inquisitive in that they want to understand why people do or don't do the things that they do, whether that's with customers or that's with other teams that you work with or, you know, anything in your life. That totally makes sense. Have you ever gotten in trouble for asking a question? And I'm going to preface this by saying I have gotten in trouble by asking why we do this. And they're just like, this is how we do it. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> like at work or just in life? Yeah, work or life, like whatever, you know, you ask a question. And, I mean, yeah, let's say in the work setting where in your, your career, you've asked a question and they've kind of gotten heat for it. Never asked a question where someone's like, hey, just back off or anything like that. Interesting. But I've definitely asked questions a million times where it's clear that I've stepped on like a cultural landmine. And like just sometimes companies don't do something because it doesn't fit with their DNA or their ethos. Mm. And they don't always communicate that stuff well. Like I'll give you a tangible example. When I started at Wistia, I was like a demand gen guy. Like that's how I started there. I, my job was to get more free signups. And Wistia basically had nothing with forms on it. To this day, has very little forms on their website. They just believed in making cool shit and giving it out for free. Like that's, <laughs> that's just what they are. It's worked really well for them. And I remember I came on and I was like, hey, you know, I noticed that there's no forms on the website. Like I think you should add some forms. And it was just very clear. People were like, no, dude, we're not adding forms to the website. And I was like, well, we need more leads. It's like really crystal clear. Like conversion rate is 0. 0.000, whatever. Yeah. I think if you add more forms, it'll be 1%. Like that's 2000 more, whatever it is, you know? And so there's been times like that for sure that it's been clear, like, hey, that's not what we're going to do. Mm. That totally makes sense, right? I mean, once you understand the ethos, like I love how you said it, the ethos of the company, you want to make sure. Now you understand why they're doing what they're doing, right? And so I think that that's really helpful, right? Like you got to understand the frameworks on how people mm. make decisions because without it, it's just like tactics, right? Like what I was proposing was just a tactic, 
but they were sharing a framework to how they make decisions as a company. Mm. So as time has gone on, that sticks with me. It's like, oh, I need to understand some of the landmines. I need to understand the frameworks of how these companies make decisions right. because just because I read about it in some growth article, like it's a growthy thing to do. I work in growth. I should do that too. If our company isn't doing it, we're not doing all that we could do. And it's just, it's just not quite that black and white. It's mm, interesting. You know, looking back for people who are just starting a new job in a company, what would be some things that they would do? Now it's a perfect example of like first, you know, the ethos of the company before you suggest a tactic. What are other landmines that, you know, people who are switching to a new growth role in a, within a company should look at or avoid? I think that's definitely a landmine. I think a lot of times people with the best of intentions rush into projects, into tactics, into programs because they're just looking to make an impact really, really quickly, which I understand. But I think you're better off in the long term creating a personal brand that's more strategic versus just being the fastest. And so mm. I've seen that happen fairly often where somebody starts a new role, they're like itching to get going because they've been a high performer in a previous job. And they just get going too fast, too quick without focusing on the right problems. And so without real knowledge of like foundationally how the business works and what the levers are, they kind of just run from project to project, but aren't really able to make a big impact in mm. the company because they just don't have all the information to prioritize. So that's that's been like one of the big ones that I've seen. It only makes sense. I want to talk about something that people might have a question about in their career. How long should they stay within a company before they should start thinking about moving on? I noticed you know, you've, you've gotten three really great companies, HubSpot, uh, and then Wistia, and then Postscript. How did you know when it's time to to move on to the next job or the next opportunity? It's hard. I don't know the right answer to this. I mean, the way that I've mm. typically done it is when I've stopped growing at the rate that I'd like to grow mm. at is when I've typically moved on. You know, I was at HubSpot for a really long time and I had tons of cool jobs there early on. Like I worked there, you know, way before the IPO and there was like 200 people there and everything was changing all the time. And I just felt like every day, they had someone incredible come in. And every day I was like, I'm getting a PhD in marketing right now. And I was like, it was super cool in those early days. And then as time went on, you know, things, things change. And so for me, I was learning. I really, really enjoyed, I guess, let me take a step back. I started working on an experiment at HubSpot. And as time went on, I really liked working on it, but I was starting to run the program and not work in the program. And that's just what I like doing. That's where I was growing the most. I wasn't interested in growing, you know, to sell more of the program and stuff like that. So for me, it was time to move on. And then similarly at Wistia, you know, at some point in time when you've, you've run tons and tons of experiments and you've worked in the same funnel for a long time, it makes sense to move outside of that and to challenge yourself and to work in a different environment at a different scale. And so it made sense for me. I'm about to have a baby, as I mentioned before we started filming this. So... I know that that changes everything. And sometimes you want to go through a phase where I think they, in the Radical Candor book, they call it like a rock star versus a superstar phase where you mm. just want to do really good work and then clock out at like 5.15 and do things outside of work. So I'm probably entering one of those, but uh, up until this <laughs> point, that's how I've done it. Well, congrats, Matt. I, I'm excited for you. Having the first baby is going to be a transition. <laughs> Definitely different for sure. You know, you talked about the book Radical Candor. Have there been other books that's been very impactful in your career that's really kind of like shifted the way that you think about not necessarily tactical, it could be more probably focused on the soft skills like Radical Candor. What would be those books that you've taken to heart? Oh, that's such a good question. 
I'm like tempted to look over my shoulder, but I've only <laughs> kept a few of the really good ones. Go right ahead, bud. You know, I'm trying to think. None of those ones have really done it, but there's a book that I'm reading right now. It's actually really good. It's right next to my desk here. I'm going to hang it up and I'm going to show it to you. Uh, it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's all about getting outside of the box. It's by the Harbinger mm. Institute, which I've never heard of, but it's all about being a leader and being a good manager and doing it by investing and viewing people as people and not as objects to get tasks Mm. done. And it talks about applications in life as well as in work. And I'm really into books like that, where you gain life skills that apply in many and help you level up in many areas of your life. And for me, it's been one of those books. I've, I've like already taken a bunch of notes. I'll probably read it twice. So that's been a really cool one. I also read the Phil Jackson book. I think it's called 11 yeah. Rings on Leadership, which has mm. also been really good. I'm an everyday meditator. I try to practice gratitude and mindfulness just as part of my everyday. And so it was really interesting how he was able to integrate being a sports coach while staying true to his roots and sort of his foundations, which is also in uh, gratitude and mindfulness. So those are two that I really like. Sounds like you're reading a lot of leadership books. I'm curious, like, you know, I'm guessing early in your career, you were an individual contributor, like contributing to a team. And now you're in a leadership position. What's been the biggest hurdle or like what is the biggest challenge with making that transition? I feel like there's a ton of challenges with it. Um, there's like a lot of amazing things. And then there's things that pop up that you didn't think you would need to work on. So, yeah, I mean, for a long time as an individual contributor, but when I started to transition into more of a leadership role, like all of a sudden I needed to be an exceptional communicator, right? Mm. And it's just a different thing. It's not something that you typically work on or get feedback on unless something really blows up. They don't typically talk about it in like, you know, the manager books or the leadership books. So that's been one of the biggest transitions. How do I communicate with a wide variety of audiences? Like I was always used to communicating with my peers. Hey, we're working on this project. Here's the name of the experiment. Here's how we're going to run it. Here's how we're going to set up the tech on the back end. Here's what success looks like very in the weeds, very nitty gritty. And what was totally different is when I started communicating up and managing more up Mm. with, you know, the executive team and the, you know, the executive leadership team and the C-level team, it was just a totally different depth of content where I would start to share the same information and they'd be like, whoa, 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 what are we doing? What's the strategy (laughs) here? Can we take 10 steps back? And so that has been a huge transition for me. Mm. And it's something that's just hard to learn over time. You know, no one, no one pulls you aside and says, Hey, when you set up a slide deck and you present it to the executive team, here's <laughs> what you want to include. Like nobody does that, or at least they haven't at the companies I've been at. I work at startups. That's really funny. It's funny you say like, oh, I wish somebody had told me this. Have you ever had a mentor, like a formal one or like a, maybe an informal one? You know, what are your thoughts about mentors? And for people who aren't, you know, this is a double-sided question, but for people who are interested about getting a mentor, how do they go about getting mentors? I'm a huge fan in mentorship. I've had a bunch of different mentors over the years. And then this past year, I started working uh, with a professional coach, which is a mentor and then some. But on the mentor side, I think there's like a couple things. Like I think understanding what you want, like, mm. like what do you need a mentor for? Is it focused on a specific problem? Or are you trying to get somewhere in your career? But I think the more, the, like the better re- like mentor-mentee relationships are when they're focused around a topic and the mentor doesn't have to guess what the topic is. And so early, like I had a mentor at my first job. They had a, a mentor program. I got paired up with this random guy who was like an SVP at this 2,000-person ad agency. And I was 22. I was an analyst. Like I didn't know what to talk to him about. 
And so he did a really good job of asking me like, Hey, what are you trying to do in your life? Like, are you trying to stay? Like, do you like what you're doing? Do you think you want to be a manager someday? Do you want to do something different? What does that look like? And so he really gave me a bunch of like career advice and stuff. And so he, he was able to figure it out. But I think the more, if you know what you'd like to get out of a mentor relationship, the better it'll be. Um, so I've been a huge fan of that. And then I started working with a professional coach about a year ago. And that's been one of the highest leverage things I think I've ever done outside of like, you know, formal education. So that's been really cool as well, where it's very similar, where you identify, you being the person who's being coached, identify what success looks like, you know, at a high level, like what you want, or you focused more on feeling differently, handling stress differently, communicating clearer, developing other, you know, whatever it is. And then that person helps you to figure out the roadmap to get from where you are to what you define as success. So big fan of that stuff. I think if anybody's looking to get a mentor, start by figuring out what you'd like to get out of the relationship Mm -hmm. and then see if you can find somebody that you already have met who seems to have the skills that could get you there. I think it's better if it's someone that you kind of know because one, they'll be more likely to invest in you and and like give you some time. Uh, And then two, it just helps you be vulnerable, which Mm. like the whole name of the game. Really interesting. I've never gotten a private coach, but I've always been curious, how often do you meet? And is it a very structured discussion or more like a very informal discussion? There's different things that you can obviously set up, but I meet with my coach twice a month. We chat for between 45 minutes and an hour and 15 minutes, kind of depending on the day. And it's a formal relationship. Like We've got to schedule time. You know, I, I pay for the sessions. But the way that we get there is more informal. So typically mm. what will happen is either I'll email in advance or at the beginning of the conversation, I'll say, hey, here's what I'm hoping to get out of this. Mm. And sometimes it might be, hey, I'm going through a really tough time at work and I'm not handling stress well. I want to talk through strategies that can help me to manage that. Or other times it might be, hey, I'm working on this project and I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. Can you help me get unblocked? And we'll talk through and we'll kind of break it down into steps. So the way that we get to the end of the road or to the destination is different, but it's been very, very cool. Uh, And it includes a bunch of tools that are helpful just in life as well as in the office. That's really fascinating. And now it seems like you're doing the same. You're doing some kind of giving back to the community and offering some mentorship with delivering value.co. I'm curious, how, how did that get started? And, you know, if people are interested, who are you interested in having a chat with? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It started informally probably three or four years ago. You know, when I was working at at Wistia, people would reach out and they'd say, hey, I'm looking to start a growth team. I work at a small company. Uh, most of them have taken Reforge or have heard of Reforge. Like that is the pinnacle of growth education. But a lot of those lecturers like work in Silicon Valley at these big, super impressive companies. And so, I mean, I worked at a small company at Wistia and we still had a formal growth team and we were able to accomplish a lot. And so it will be people at early stage companies or smaller, but like quickly growing companies would just reach out to me. Like it's been happening for years and they'd say, hey, could I pick your brain over coffee? And I loved it, man. It just gave me so much energy. And so the last few months as I went fully remote, I started to do more of them. And I realized that I could help people more if we had more sessions, but I can't just talk to people on the phone all day, every day. Like that's crazy. (laughs) Uh, You know, I've got a full-time job in addition to doing that stuff. And so I started delivering value.co. It's a small coach, mentoring, coach, you know, professional coaching environment for growth folks. And so I work with a couple of clients. I've got two right now at different levels of experience. One is head of growth at a startup. The other one has just started his growth journey also at a small company. 
And it's typically a good fit for people who are the only or most senior growth people at their companies. Small companies with limited resources, not the, you know, not the big unicorns where you've got other people that can provide mentorship and stuff. And it's different. Like sometimes I'll just be a sounding board where people say, hey, here's what, here's how I'm running our growth, you know, system at our company. Can you tell me what I'm missing? Uh, and other times it might be, hey, I'm I'm struggling to create a growth roadmap that I can share with my CEO. Can you help me think through different ways that we might be able to present it? And it's been really cool, man. It's been really fulfilling. So if people are interested, you can cruise to the site, deliveringvalue.co. I've got a little get in touch form there, or you can follow me online. You know, sometimes I'll I'll share some of the outcomes of the conversations or tools or frameworks and things that people can learn a little bit more about on the site or, or maybe on social media. Interesting. And that's probably where you're getting your ideas for your LinkedIn post lately. You've been posting a lot more with uh, really valuable stuff. <laughs> I just want to start wrapping up. One question I love asking, and this is related to your coaching and you know your growth career. You know, If you had one or two pieces of advice to your younger self, like you, you had, you know, talking to your younger Andrew, <laughs> or it could be even one of the co- people you're coaching that might be a, a little early on in the growth career. What would be those one or two pieces of advice that you would give? I'd say on the tactical side, focus more on learning frameworks versus tactics. Mm. And so for me early on, like when I was first getting into growth, I didn't really know what growth was or like how to run a growth system. So I would just listen to all the famous growth people that worked at cool companies talk. And I'd basically just copy what they did. And like, I mean, I shared the example earlier on where sometimes you culturally can't do those things at the company that you're at, or you don't have the resources to do it. And like, eventually what I learned is that if you learn a tactic, you can solve a couple problems. But if you learn a framework, you have a way to solve almost every problem or certainly many more problems than just tactics. So I wish I could have invested more into frameworks versus tactics early. And then early on, I, I thought I should know everything about growth. Like even though I worked at a relatively small company, I was the only person that worked in growth. And I felt like I needed to know everything. And because of that, it made me scared. Like I worked scared. I I did small experiments. I took small chances. And I was afraid to take big risks because I didn't want to be wrong uh, because I thought I always had to be right. Like the conversion rates always had to be going up. Like every one out of three experiments had to win. I just put too much pressure on it. So I think if I could go back, I would think bigger earlier and not be scared to fuck it up and look stupid and all that good stuff. Cause that's when you learn the most is when you're just vulnerable and you try crazy things and you learn from it. And that's the good stuff. That's really good. And uh, just brings back to one of the things you said are soft skills that growth people need to have, which is doesn't care about being right. As a follow-up question, how do you get over that fear of not screwing up or not like totally blowing up shit? Like, <laughs> is it, you try enough times with small things that you're like, Oh, uh, it's going to happen. I'll fix it. Like, how do you get over that fear, that hump? So a mentor uh, helped me with this. Mm. And what they did is they said, I used to write it in my experiment docs. Uh, it would, I would write out and it would say, if this goes perfectly, what do I learn? And then I would write out just mm. underneath it. I would write, if this goes totally wrong, what do we learn from it? And then no matter what, even if you don't win like results mm. and data wise, you're still getting better and smarter over time. And so the bigger risks that you take are the more bigger learning steps. So that's how I got over it. It was through like that tip, but that tip changed the way that I approach things and it unblocked me. That's so good, man. That's a really great advice. I'm going to start doing that as, as well. I've never thought about it. It's just, it kind of shifts your perspective. Like right? this is not a failure. 
this is me learning something and that's still success, right? And that's, you're kind of quantifying or qualifying what success would look like. I think it's equally as helpful to know what doesn't work as it is to know Mm. what works. Yeah. So good. One final question, you know, you've already talked about deliveringvalue.co. Where do you want people to go after this? Like if they want to find out more about what you're working on or some of the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they can definitely check out deliveringvalue.co. I publish a little bit on Medium. You could find me on there. LinkedIn's the main channel. I I don't really hang out on too many other social media channels, but that's the one that I invest in. And then certainly check out what we're up to over at Postscript, postscript postscript.io. That's where I spend my days working and work some cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. I appreciate it. You got it, man. Had a blast. 